Yesterday, a headline on a major news network grabbed my attention. It was an article with advice from a pastor who, of course, was selling a book. (laughs) His advice was on what to do when life gets tough. And it was catchy the way that he asked the question, what do you do when you're flooded with thoughts that are drenched in fear and worry and stress and even in selfishness, impurity and lies? The reason this caught my attention was that Tracy and I used to attend this church, the church where this, this guy now pastors. Um, it's here in Washington State, and that was, that was more than 20 years ago. It was a different pastor, and I don't know this guy at all. I'm not going to mention his name or the name of his book because I haven't read his book, and I actually don't plan on reading it. It doesn't look like it's worth the time or the 99 cents on Kindle. The article was really about all I could stomach. Here's his advice for people living under stress, worry, and fear. The power, he says, to overcome these things is thinking positive thoughts. Like we haven't heard that before. This guy is hawking his own version of the same false teaching that Norman Vincent Peale was hawking 70 years ago, the power of positive thinking. And how can you choose to have a positive attitude? Well, according to this pastor, we must reject and replace. And I think this first one is what angered me so much because of our study in the letter of 1 Peter. Replace the thought, there's no hope for my future, With this thought, I am thankful for today and will keep doing the next right thing. No mention, like we've heard from Peter, of a real and living hope that's grounded on the rock-solid reality of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing like that. We just need to think positively about our future And here's his advice for struggling parents. You just need to replace the thought, my children are annoying, with my children are a gift from God. It sounds nice, but again, there's no mention of a need for repentance or of a need for gospel truths to transform your impatient, annoyed heart. No, just think positively about your kids. Seriously, that is the extent of what this pastor has to offer a world that is being drowned in stress and worry and fear. It's just religious-sounding, therapeutic psychobabble. I don't know what's motivating him, but I will say this, that as an elder... He is charged with shepherding the flock. And some of his flock, I am certain, are suffering. And what he's hawking here is of no help to them. In fact, it is positively harmful. What his flock needs is elders who shepherd them aright, who point them to real hope during times of stress, worry, and fear. 
And that is exactly what Peter is concerned with in this morning's text. This is Peter's exhortation to elders. And that means that this text and this sermon is primarily directed at four guys in this room. Ken, Mark, Josh, and me. Which begs the question, how do the rest of you hear this? How does this apply to the rest of us? Well, let me give three answers to that question by pointing to three groups who are here this morning who need to hear what Peter has to say. Number one, this text applies not only to current elders, but to future elders. And my hope is that there are many men here this morning who are aspiring to the office of elder. There's always a need for more godly men to serve the church in this role. If you aspire to, an el- to be an elder, Paul says you desire a noble task. If that's you, then you need to know what will be expected of you as an elder. So this text applies to you. Number two. This text applies to every member of this congregation. At Living Water Church, the elders don't choose their own elders. Members are responsible for putting forward members who, they th- who appear to be biblically qualified to serve in this role. You know that we do this during member meetings. The deacons collect names, they conduct an initial interview, and then they forward the names to the elders for further vetting, training, and appointing. So every member needs to know what to look for in a potential elder. So all members need to know what Peter is saying here. This applies to you. Number three, this text applies to everyone here because you need to know what to expect of your elders. If we're not serving you as we should, then knowing what Peter says here is critical for you to hold our feet to the fire. So, yes, this text is primarily directed at four guys this morning, but it's critical for everyone here. We are entering the last chapter of 1 Peter. We started this journey six months ago, and we're clipping along at about four verses per week which means that we are in the trees. So to not lose sight of the forest, Josh and I try hard to remind you each week of the context of the passage. And we try to show you how it fits into the flow of Peter's letter. We never want to pluck verses out of context and preach them as if they weren't connected to the whole. In this text, Peter's exhortation to elders in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5, this is, di- this is directly related to the fact that these exiles are suffering because of their faith. They are being slandered, shamed, and dishonored by the pagan society in which they have been exiled. And Peter turns his attention here to those who are supposed to be serving them as leaders. And the picture that Peter uses is that of the people of God as a flock of sheep and their leaders as shepherds. 
Now, this is the point in sermons about sheep and shepherds where pastors typically tell you how dumb sheep are. Well, I don't know a lot about sheep, but I don't think that that has anything to do with this text. This is about the shepherds, and so we're going to stay focused on shepherding the flock. This picture is found all over the Bible, from Moses and his brother Aaron to Joshua and the judges and King David. The people of God are the flock, and the leaders are shepherds, though it's important to note that God Himself is also pictured as their shepherd, as you know from Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. You see, this is the perfect picture. Everyone at the time was familiar with sheep and with shepherds. Everyone knew what the job of the shepherd was. So the picture of a man caring for a flock of vulnerable sheep was a fitting analogy for elders and the churches under their care. Without spending too much time on shepherding in general. Let me just point you to a text that is rich in meaning for elders and for congregations. It is Ezekiel chapter 34. You should read the whole chapter later. You can also look at Jeremiah chapter 23. God here is blasting a rebuke to the leaders of Israel. These were the kings, the officials, and the priests who were supposed to be shepherding his people, but they weren't. And here's just a sampling of what God says about bad shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they are scattered because there was no shepherd." And they became food for all the wild beasts. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hands and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. It is a serious thing to be a shepherd of God's sheep. And if you just flip that text around, you get an idea of what God expects of His shepherds. Shepherds are supposed to feed the sheep, not eat them. Shepherds are supposed to strengthen the weak sheep and heal the sick ones. Shepherds are supposed to seek out and bring back the strain and lost ones. Shepherds are supposed to lead sheep gently, not rule over them with force or harshness. And shepherds are supposed to protect the flock from wolves and bears. That's what God expects of those who shepherd His people. And these shepherds failed to do that, and yet God did not leave His scattered flock to perish. 
No, he promised them a good shepherd, a good shepherd that will come from the line of, the, of King David and shepherd them aright. Listen to the promise that follows. Again, this is still in Ezekiel. After blasting the shepherds, he says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord God. Now fast forward about 600 years. And the people hear from the mouth of our Lord Jesus these words, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's no wonder that his hearers were divided when he said that. And many of them said, he is a demon. This man's insane. Why would you listen to him? They thought he was crazy because he was laying claim to the throne. He was the king. He was the promised shepherd. And as this good and great shepherd was laying down his life for his sheep, one of his disciples denied him. It was the apostle Peter, the author of this letter. He denied Christ three times. Jesus restores him, though, in John chapter 21. You remember the story. Peter and six other disciples go fishing. They fish all night and they catch nothing. At daybreak, Jesus appears on the shore and tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat. And when they did, they, they haul in 153 fat fish. John recognizes that it's Jesus on the shore, and he tells Peter, who jumps in the water and gets to the shore ahead of the boat, and they eat breakfast with the risen Jesus. And when they had finished their fish and bread breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three times, probably mirroring the three denials, Jesus tells Peter to feed and tend his sheep. So as we come to this sex section of Peter's letter, about 30 years has gone by since Jesus spoke those words to Peter. 
you can see that Peter cares deeply for these exiles, these scattered flocks. In a sense, this entire letter is Peter doing what Jesus, the chief shepherd, charged him to do that morning on the beach. He is feeding and tending Christ's flock, and he's ensuring that others do the same. Let's see how he does that in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you. With the word so, Peter connects what he's about to say to these elders with what came before in the letter. These exiles are suffering, so the elders have a special responsibility to care for them. Peter's words here are an exhortation, and to exhort is to urge. Peter says, I urge the elders among you. Peter knows his role, which includes being an elder, as we'll see, but here he addresses the local elders. These are the elders that are among you. They are the ones Peter is urging. Then Peter lays the foundation for what he's about to say to them by reminding them of three things about himself. Now, the readers know who Peter is, but he's using these to press home his exhortation. He's emphasizing the urgency of what he's calling the elders to do. Number one, Peter says, I am a fellow elder. I am not asking you to do anything that I'm not already doing. I'm in the arena with you. The difference in this case is that I'm not among this flock. You are. Peter has already established in the first verse of this letter that he is an apostle. But he doesn't lead with that here. The first thing he tells them is that I am in this with you. I'm a fellow elder. That puts elders everywhere on notice that there's a solidarity that you have with this man. Elders, you are not alone in this work. Number two, Peter says, I'm an apostle. That is, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. The charge that I am giving you, yes, is as a fellow elder, but it also comes with apostolic authority. To be a witness was the mark of apostleship. To be numbered among the apostles meant that you were a witness of Christ and His resurrection. We see that in Acts 1 when the apostles cast lots to replace Judas with Matthias, who for some reason we never hear about again. So telling the elders that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ gives Peter's urgency, urging a divine sense of authority and gravity. Number three, Peter says, I'm a fellow elder, I'm an apostle, and I'm also a partaker in the glory that will be revealed. Now, we know that Peter was an eyewitness of the glory of Christ during the transfiguration. He caught a glimpse, so to speak, of the glory of the Lord. So he anticipates the return of the chief shepherd. And as he does, it's no surprise that he mentions the word glory often, about a dozen times in this little letter. The glory that is going to be revealed stands in stark contrast to the shame and dishonor that these exiles are currently living under. Peter chose his words wisely. 
Glory gives substance to their heavenly hope. So Peter lays the foundation for, for his charge by reminding the elders that he is with them in this. He's a fellow elder. But he's also an apostle. So his charge comes with authority. And he's our partaker in. He's shared in the glory that will most certainly be revealed when the chief shepherd returns. That's the foundation. And with that fresh in your mind, here's what Peter calls you to do, elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. You're the spiritual leaders of these exiles, so take care of them. That's what it means to shepherd. It means to tend, to feed, to care for, to pastor them like a good shepherd does his sheep. Elders, that's your job. Shepherd the flock. Now, Peter says two important things about this flock. Pay close attention to this phrase. One, it is God's flock. We saw this in the words of Ezekiel. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against the, I'm against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. Brothers, this flock belongs to God. Let that season everything you do as an elder, every hospital visit, every counseling session, everything you teach, and every time you pray, this flock belongs to God. Oh, it's Him again. He's just a stubborn sheep. He might even be a goat for all I know. He's been wandering off for years now. Just let him go. You know, if a wolf gets him, it's his own stupid fault. And God says, really? He's mine. Don't ever forget whose flock this is. You feed him. You lead him to still water so he can drink. You go after him when he strays. You put yourself between him and the bear that wants to kill him. He is mine. It is a weighty thing, brothers, to shepherd the flock that belongs to the Almighty. Elders, remember that when you're dealing with people. They're God's people. Members, remember that when you put forward new elders, make sure they're men who know their place and who know what their chief shepherd demands of them. And all of you, help us to know where we're failing to shepherd God's flock well. Elders, this is Paul speaking now, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. Keep watch over their souls as those who will have to give an account. The second thing Peter wants you to know that is that this flock, the flock that he is talking about, is the flock that is among you. Look around you, elders. This is the flock that is among you. Not your followers on YouTube. I don't think this is a big problem with our elders. 
<laughs> not your followers on X or on Facebook and not your podcast followers. It can be a real problem when preachers go on the speaking circuit or on the book circuit. And there's a place for that. Books and Bible conferences can be a help for shepherds and for sheep. But the flock that God has called you to serve is the flock that is among you. Your flock is a spiritual flock of flesh and blood, if I may put it that way, where the relationships are real and often messy. You're not called to shepherd an internet fan club. That is not even shepherding, brothers. Now, how do you go about shepherding God's flock? Peter says that you shepherd by exercising oversight. That is by taking care of, by seeing to, by looking out for, by keeping watch over the flock. Exercising oversight is the same word the author of Hebrews uses when he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. To see to it is to exercise oversight. The common New Testament word for the office of elder is overseer. That's what Peter is focusing on in his charge to these local elders. Now, Peter could have said any number of things about overseeing the flock, but he, does, he doesn't. He's, he's got a very narrow focus. He fo- he's focused like a laser on the manner in which you are to exercise oversight of a flock that is suffering. That's the context. And the way that Peter says it here is absolutely beautiful And my outline looks more like a stick figure compared to what Peter did. Peter lists three marks, and each is composed of a negative followed by a positive. And I've just listed the positive marks in the outline. Here they are. Verse 2, negatively, don't exercise oversight under compulsion, but positively do it willingly. Number two, Negatively, don't exercise oversight for shameful gain, but positively, do it eagerly. Moving into verse 3, the third mark. Negatively, don't exercise your oversight by by being domineering, but positively, be an example to the flock. A quick word about each of these. Exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly. This might not be as clear as the other two. Elders, though, must be willing to serve as elder. It must be voluntary, not merely out of a sense of obligation. This might not be a big problem today, but if the church were under persecution, as it was when Peter wrote, the situation might be very different. You can imagine the pressure you'd feel if an apostle wanted to appoint you as an elder. Or if your fellow church members got together and put you forward for eldership. They need need a shepherd. Times are really tough. They're feeling the shame of persecution around them. They're being slandered. They need someone to help lead. And so you feel pressured to serve in that role. We never want that. It's especially problematic, though, during persecution. Who are the first targets when government goes after underground churches in China? Who are the first 
targets, it's always the pastors. It's the elders. That's why the flock needs shepherds who are all in, who serve willingly, who will never abandon their post. I think that's why Peter wants to make sure that these elders serve willingly and not under pressure. So elders, if you feel forced into eldership, please reconsider your calling. And members, if your fellow members that you put forward for elder, you put forward members for eldership, they don't want it, please don't pressure them into it because willingly is how God would have you shepherd his flock. Well, feeling pressure isn't the only reason a man might want to be an elder. He may want to do it for shameful gain. Now, money is the obvious example here. Give to get scams by televangelists and the false teachers of the Word of Faith movement. Those are obvious. But there are other types of shameful gain that are more subtle than the Benny Hins and the Kenneth Copelands. What about the sinful desire to feed your pride by being in what you think is an elevated position or an elevated status among other people? That, by the way, is a really odd notion. You see, the role of elder is that of a shepherd. That's a low position. In fact, the role in the church is even lower than that of shepherd. We're under shepherds. We don't even own our own flock. We're just underlings. We answer to the chief shepherd to whom the flock belongs. One way that we guard against that idea, the idea of elder as a pride-inducing position of authority, is by operating under the biblical model of a plurality of elders. We're more like a team of underling shepherds. Here, we're, we're equal. And none of us can claim a higher position in the pecking order so as to feed our pride. And I think that's a helpful check and balance. I think it's biblical as well. This mark of an overseer is the same as what Paul told Titus to look for in elders. For an overseer is God's steward, Paul wrote, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. This mark even applies to deacons. Paul tells Timothy, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. Do not exercise oversight for shameful gain. Rather, and here's the positive, do it eagerly. That is, do it in eagerness to be of service, as one translator puts it. There's an eagerness motivated by the desire for shameful gain, and there's an eagerness motivated by a desire to serve God's flock. Let your eagerness, el elders, be an eagerness to be of service to God's people. And as you consider who to put forward for eldership, mark their eagerness and what is motivating their eagerness. The third mark is in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The word domineering here is translated in other places as lording it over them. This is the word Jesus used 
when he told the disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. The chief shepherd brothers is your example If you remember, domineering over those in your charge is one of the things God deplored when He spoke against the shepherds in the prophet Ezekiel. They strayed. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. Do not lord it over them. Elders must be rather, here's the positive, an example to the flock. Elders, you should be able to say to every member here what Paul said to the Philippians, to Timothy, and to the Corinthians. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Set an example to believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, and show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. That is the heart of what Peter is teaching here. Elders, shepherd the flock. It is the flock of God. It is the flock that is among you. And shepherd by exercising oversight. And exercise your oversight by being willing, eager, and an example for the flock to follow. That's the kind of shepherding required of you. Now let's save verse 4 for the conclusion. And I need to say a quick word about the first part of verse 5. Josh is going to preach the second half of verse 5 next week. But verse 5 begins like this. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And this could be a whole other sermon. So if it feels like I'm just shoehorning this in, it's because I am. This is a new thought that Peter has here, but it's directly connected to what he just said. Peter's probably addressing those who are younger at this point in his letter because of a tendency, especially when you're young, to buck or disregard those who are older, which elders at the time usually were. To be clear, I don't think Peter is telling those who are younger to be subject to everyone who is older than them. He's simply singling out those who are younger and telling them to be subject to the elders who are charged with overseeing them in the church. So the proper attitude to the elders is to be subject to them. And Peter begins this thought with the word likewise. That is, in the same way that I urge the elders to shepherd God's flock, I urge you who are younger to give the proper response to the elders who oversee you. 
Now, we've taught about what it means to, to be subject to many times already in this letter, so I won't repeat that. But I do want to note that Peter uses that word, be subject to, five times in this letter. Christians are to be subject to governing authorities. Slaves are to be subject to their masters. Wives are to be subject to their husbands. Angels, authorities, and powers are subjected to Christ. And here, those who are younger are to be subject to the elders. Each of those relationships are different. But isn't it interesting that Peter devotes only 10 words to addressing those who are younger when he has blasted a full 90 words, in English at least, to those who elder them, who shepherd them. That's telling. What Peter is saying here, though, isn't unique. And it doesn't just apply to those who are younger. The author of Hebrews says the same thing and applies it to all church members, young and old. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So as we close, let's go back to verse 4. Elders, the race of shepherding the flock of God is before you. Run it. Run willingly, run eagerly, and run as an example to be followed by the flock. In verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is Peter's encouragement to you. And as you run, remember your reward. Crowns are for winners. Military officers victorious in battle and athletes victorious in the games. It is the winners who get the crown. So let the crown of glory spur you on in your race. Every athlete, Paul says, exercises self-control in all things. They do it for a perishable wreath. That's the same word as crown. But we, an imperishable, a crown that does not fade that image is common in the New Testament. Crowns are held out to believers who remain steadfast under trial, who have stood the test, who run the race, who fight the good fight. They receive the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of rejoicing, and here, the crown of glory. These different crowns are meant to describe different aspects of the victory that eternal life brings to the believer. The unfading crown of glory points to the reality that eternal life means unending glory for the believer. And glory means victory over all the shame and disgrace and dishonor that you are experiencing now in exile. Peter is deliberately setting this crown of glory in stark contrast to the shameful suffering that these exiles are enduring. Peter points to glory all throughout this letter. He promised them that the tested genuineness of their faith would be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He told them that they should rejoice as they share in the sufferings of Christ so that they might rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. And at the end of this letter, 
Peter is going to comfort these exiles with these stunning words. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Make no mistake. The victory that gains this crown of glory was won at the cross. It was there that Christ secured victory over sin and shame. The the chief shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. He secured this victory and this crown with his own blood. That means that the race that you run, brothers, is a race that has already been won. So there's nothing of real value for you to lose. Run, elders. Now, some of you might be thinking, is it really okay to pursue reward? Is it really okay? Isn't that selfish? Maybe it's mercenary. Might that not turn into some of that shameful gain that Peter just warned us about? I think that's a fair objection And we don't have time, but I'll just take one swipe at it. That might be possible with other rewards, but not with this one. Consider one text. Look at Isaiah chapter 28, verse 5. It might help you understand why this reward is very different than the pursuit of selfish gain. Isaiah 28, 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people. The image here is that the Lord Himself will be the crown of glory to His people. And if the crown is the Lord Himself, then running for that prize is never mercenary. It is not shameful gain. When the chief shepherd returns, he will crown you with His glorious presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. There is no greater reward than that. In running for that reward honors God, not you. And it results in your everlasting joy in Him. And therein lies the real and ultimate comfort for all suffering exiles and for their elders as well. So, this crown of glory one for you at the cross, is exactly the kind of prize that should motivate you as elders. And what's more, this crown is unfading. It's going to last forever, brothers. Let's run. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we think about the the task of shepherding, exercising oversight. Father, I pray that you would give the elders of Living Water Church wisdom. Father, I pray that there would be a fire kindled in their bones to run hard after the crown of glory that has been set before them. Well, Father, I pray that our work would be helpful 
to your flock. I pray that you would help us to know how to heal. Help us to know how to care for the sick. Help us to know how to go after the strain and the lost. Father, we need you for this task. It is impossible. And so we look to you and to your son, the chief shepherd, to give us the grace and the wisdom to know how to shepherd well. Father, we want to run. We want to run hard. Father, we want to do it for your glory alone. So, Father, I pray that you would help us and help our people here to choose from among themselves elders who are eager and willing, not after shameful gain. And Father, I pray that you would just give us wisdom. And I ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.